Good morning. Never want to cease to thank God for His grace. Take your Bibles, please, and turn to Matthew 21. And stand with me to read God's Word. We're in Matthew 21, and so far Jesus' actions have shown Him to be the expected Messiah, the Savior of the world in the fullest sense. And what it shows is that spiritual uncleanness would be would be handled by Christ. It would be overcome by the King. So we're going to read verses 18 through 22 today. It follows the cleansing of the temple, which was a symbol of the great work that Christ had come to accomplish. And now we're going to see another symbolic action, uh, Christ cursing the fig tree. So Matthew 21, beginning at verse 18. In the morning, and he, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive, if you have faith. Let's pray. Lord God, we do not want to pretend that we really don't know what this passage is about and that we are confused by some of the wording and by some of the things that happened and by some of the things that you have said. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give us understanding, that you would open our eyes, that we would see wonderful things in your word and that, Lord, you would teach us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You know, I think probably the number one question that we would want to ask as we approach this text of Scripture is, what is this passage of Scripture all about? We don't know. People think they know. Think about it. This is a puzzling passage of Scripture, and it, you might have a study Bible with you, and someone next to you might have a study Bible, and your notes don't match from your study Bibles. Because they don't agree, the people that wrote the notes don't agree with each other. It, I know that's the case with most passages of Scripture that people have difference of opinion. But this is a passage where there is a wide divergence of opinion, and, and what the, the fig tree means is really important. And so everyone's got an idea, so let's just say we don't know. But I think I know, and I'm going to give you my best shot at it today. My, my approach, by the way, to Scripture is that I would follow 2 Timothy 2.15, study to show myself approved unto God, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. So I want to handle God's word accurately, and at the same time follow 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17. It says that all scripture is inspired by God, and it is profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and training in righteousness. The man of God may be adequate and thoroughly equipped for every good work. So I want to handle it accurately as well as bring out the appropriate implications and applications for life. With that said, there are some main options that 
people gravitate towards when they look at this passage of scripture now remember the context jesus has entered jerusalem he has in effect been uh, crowned the king he's it's a grand coronation of sorts then he cleanses the temple so we see him crowned and then cleansing and now he is cursing a fig tree so all the three main ideas the options are this that christ was rejecting israel that's the first the second is that it was just a fig tree that happened to be there and was a great excuse for jesus to teach something he wanted to teach and then the third idea would be that it's judgment that jesus is pronouncing on a particular group of people but not the whole nation of israel So let's look at those for a moment because we need to to land somewhere so that we can proceed in this passage with confidence. So let's look at the idea that it was Israel being rejected by Christ. That's popular with most scholars that this is Jesus rejecting the nation for their rejecting him. In this view, the fig tree is symbolic of Israel failing to produce and failing to have faith and righteousness. That they say they're fruitful, but they're, they have this bad attitude towards Christ as seen in, in the Gospels. And so uh, the absence of fruit leads to judgment. That's the idea. No fruit, so they're being judged for it. The only problem with this view is it ignores the fact that everyone Jesus was dealing with at this point was Jews. You've got the disciples that are on his side, that are his allies. They're Jewish. You've got the children in the temple praising him they're jewish you've got the blind and the lame coming to him in the temple being healed by him they're jewish and so this view kind of ignores the fact that it's really jew versus jew in israel at this time you either believe or you don't now you look at the view that it's a random tree it's just a tree and it that sounds nice it sounds easy it sounds nice but the only way you can really latch on to this idea is by ignoring the context and you don't want to do that you have to forfeit some obvious links in fact go with me to uh, mark chapter 11 this is the only other place this story is found if you read when we're reading through matthew and if you've been with us uh, for any length of time in Matthew, you know that Matthew likes to compress things. He likes to summarize things, even put things in more of a topical order. But Mark is very chronological. Mark usually follows the exact sequence of time in which things happened. So as we read through Matthew uh, 21, 18 through 22, it would make you think that if, if Sunday was the day he came into Jerusalem, then Monday was the day he cleansed the temple, and then Tuesday would have been the day that he cursed the fig tree. But Mark explains things in greater detail for us. And so go to Mark chapter 11, beginning at verse 12. What you see is a pattern where he comes into Jerusalem goes to the temple looks around then he curses the fig tree then he cleanses the temple then the disciples see that the fig tree's been cursed and they ask him the questions so you've got verse 12 on the following day which would have then been monday if he entered the jerusalem on sunday then monday on the following day they came to bethany he was hungry they came from bethany he was hungry just like matthew says and by the way, the idea of Jesus being hungry is, is, is a, a great picture of his humanity. He who, Hebrews 4 tells us, was made like us in all ways except for sin. 
Now, there are some people who will look at this passage and say, you know, Jesus was acting in anger because he didn't get what he wanted, and so he killed the tree. Nothing could be farther from the truth. You never see Jesus using his power as God to get something for himself. If that was the case, he could have just grown figs miraculously, but he didn't. So he cursed the fig tree, but it's a symbolic gesture pointing to something bigger. So Jesus is hungry, Mark 11, verse 13, seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. But Mark says, when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. So, many people will say, well, hey, they were fruitless, therefore they got judged, but it wasn't the season for figs, a very important bit of information for us to know. Not the season for figs, and so he says to the fig tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again, and his disciples heard it. Then he goes to Jerusalem, enters the temple, cleanses the temple, and then you go down to verse 20. The next day, this would be then Tuesday. Tuesday, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And when, whenever you stand praying, forgive. And if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Sounds, that ending part sounds a lot like the, the Lord's Prayer that Jesus gives in Matthew 7. So the idea of it being a random uh, tree sounds nice, but ignores the context. You have to forfeit some obvious links to the actual chronological order. Now, the third idea is the one that I hold to and the one that I am um, pretty much convinced it is. But of course, only God knows and you might have a different opinion. But let me give you this view. The view that it wasn't just, just him cursing Israel. It wasn't just a random tree, but it was that Jesus was, was judging those who pretended to have fruit but didn't. They were spiritually barren. The attack here would be directed at the hypocrites among the Jews. Most, most pointedly, the religious leaders who were uh, selling in, in the temple and, uh, and basically uh, cheating people and, and excluding people from fellowship with God. The idea of, of the attack being directed at the hypocrites actually fits with the context and flow of Matthew. In fact, just go to Matthew 6. Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is in the Sermon on the Mount, and verse 2, he says, When you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. You go to verse 5. When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Verse 16. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. You go over to chapter 7 and verse 5. You hypocrite, he says, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. You go all the way to chapter 15, Matthew chapter 15 and, and verse 7. The Pharisees and scribes are 
trying to, to um, trip Jesus up. And he says to them, verse, verse 7, You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You can even go past the passage we're in today into chapter 22. Look at verse 18. Jesus, aware of their malice, whose malice? The Pharisees' malice. They were trying to entangle Jesus in something that he might say that they could then accuse him. He, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? And then you could just go to all of chapter 23, if you'd like, with the seven woes that he he pronounces on the scribes and Pharisees for more proof. But the idea is that Jesus here, when he is cursing the fig tree, he is pronouncing judgment on those who pretend to have fruit but are spiritually barren. Remember, it wasn't the time for figs. The idea was the tree was advertising that it had figs. So he wasn't judging the tree for being fruitless, He was judging the tree for claiming to have fruit. Two different things. So, fitting with Mark's chronology, the fig tree, the cleansing of the temple, and then the fig tree, he is pointing at those who used the temple to make a profit that was unfair. He he was trying to, to silence those who were trying to silence the praising children. And so like a leafy, fruitless fig tree, Jesus is basically saying, uh, you're full of advertised faith, but there is none. James 2 tells us that faith without works is dead. Here is an example. So what this becomes is a, a parable acted out. The fig tree being cursed is a parable being acted out, condemning hypocrites, not all of the Jews, not all of Judaism, not the whole nation of Israel, but hypocrites within the nation. The idea is it's all about false advertising. Now, we have all been the, the victims of false advertising where someone claims something, someone claims a product can do something that it can't. You can think of all sorts of things and you're like, that was false advertising. I, I recently came across some very hilarious ones. One was of a, of a swimming pool, little blow-up swimming pool for kids that comes in a box. And on the front of the box, you've got a picture of the mom and three pretty good-sized kids inside this pretty good-sized pool. But when you get the box open and you blow it up, a three-year-old is bigger than the pool. False advertising. It's like when you go and you, you see a big picture of a big, juicy hamburger on a billboard, and you go to the place to get the hamburger, and it's all smashed and, and sweaty, basically. No one wants a sweaty hamburger. It's false advertising. But we're all the victims, and we've all seen false advertising before. We've seen small pools and sweaty hamburgers. But the idea that Jesus is getting at is that the people were being hypocritical because they were professing to have faith but did not. They were saying, we have fruit, but they didn't. Those without true faith. You see, Jesus doesn't want us to pretend to have faith. The main point here is that Jesus wants us to have real faith so that we would experience his power and his blessing. This is really a a two-part lesson about faith. Two parts. The first is, number one, and and you see it in verses 18 and 19, Jesus is basically saying, don't pretend to have faith. 
He's indicting the hypocrites, the fakers. He's, he's addressing the low road tendencies that we even have to put a mask on and to pretend. Verse 18. In the morning, he was returning to the city. He becomes hungry. Jesus, who was made in every way like us except for sin. And he sees this fig tree on the side of the road, verse 19, and he goes to it because he wanted to eat figs. Proves that Jesus liked figs, or at least that he wanted to eat figs. And he found on this tree nothing but leaves. Mark told us that this was not the season for figs. So why was the fig tree advertising figs? There should have been figs if there were leaves. I've got a fig tree in my backyard. Fig trees are often as wide as they are tall. And in the off season, it is just a bunch of sticks. They're just sticking up in the air. There's nothing there. But then all of a sudden, you'll see a a green little piece of fruit coming up and then leaves all over the place covering the fruit. So when a fig tree has the green leaves, you know there's fruit underneath the leaves. Where were they? They were, they were in, in near Jerusalem, near Bethphage, which actually was, was known for its huge crops of early figs. The name Bethphage means house of the early fig. And, and the fruit that comes out first on the fig tree was especially sweet it was the early fig that was also a promise of later fruitfulness when the the full crop would come in during the regular season for figs but in those days in that place some trees bore figs all year round now you might not like figs i love them i'm italian i love figs Uh, eating a fig right off the tree is like amazing i i had one this morning during first hour while i was preaching and then shared it with someone in here. But I decided I wouldn't do that the next two hours. But here's the thing. Whether you like him or not, Jesus wanted some fruit. The tree was advertising fruit, but the tree didn't have any fruit. Just like the hypocrites in Israel, the religious leaders, those who were saying, we're full of fruit. They thought they were the most fruitful people in the land, and they were, as Jesus said, full of dead men's bones. So Jesus says in verse 19, may no fruit ever come from you again. That tree was done. That tree was toast. There's a double negative being used here. It's the strongest kind of negative prediction. The tree would never grow any more fruit. It was a vivid object lesson that they were watching, that the tree withers at once, immediately. It it, it means on the spot. That that word immediately was used in those days for an immediate cash payment. Like if you go to your doctor and they say, we need cash right now for the services we're going to give to you. This was an immediate, on-the-spot withering the idea was that those who, who should have been producing the most and were acting like they did were the most unfruitful and so they were judged for their false profession of fruitfulness. This was false advertising at its worst. There's a word in here for us. We ought not to pretend that we're something we're not. 
we shouldn't give false impressions of fruitfulness but we do all the time think about it you're on the way to church and you get an argument with with your spouse or with one of your family members and and you're in the car in the parking lot at church and you are upset but you put on a smiley face as you're coming in the door as if everything is okay or you're walking at the church and you see from across the the plaza someone that you don't like and that you're holding a grudge against and as you walk up you put a smiley face on and you say hey buddy how you doing we ought not to to pretend something that isn't true now you shouldn't also slug them in the face but professed faith must have fruitful proof it just needs to be there or else it's false so the first part of this Jesus is addressing our low road tendency to pretend and he basically says don't pretend to have faith don't pretend but the second part really points us to the high road and he says have real faith that's the second part have real faith here he's not indicting hypocrites he's inviting honest real deal faith and it comes through dependent prayer it comes through as verses 20 through 22 tell us faith without doubting we all doubt we all have doubts many christians think they're loser christians because they doubt you know jesus wouldn't have said have faith and do not doubt if he didn't know full well that we do doubt you have faith and do not doubt he says what will happen well you'll be genuinely trusting in god and you will obey his word you'll discern his will verse 20 the 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 disciples asked how did the fig tree wither at once my answer is duh who you've been hanging out with uh the same guy that just healed blind people and lame people that's how it happened the same guy that walked on water, that's how it happened. The same guy that calmed the sea and calmed the storm and fed 5,000 or 20,000, that's the one and that's how it happened. How did this happen? How did it wither at once? Because his word is powerful and if he says it, it happens. Now I realize immediate blessing and immediate judgment doesn't always happen that way. Sometimes it does. God says in Hebrews eleven six that without faith it is impossible to please him. Blessing and judgment are often immediate realities with Jesus. Jesus' response to the disciples' question uh, regarding how this happened points them once again to the importance of faith. Without faith, you can't please God. In verse 21, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, truly is the word amen. He starts the, the, the phrase, he starts his sentence with amen. This is the way it is. This is how it will be. Amen, I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt. Doubt means to be devout, divided in your mind, uh, thinking two opposing things at the same time. It means to waver. It means to, to be the opposite of, of believing. A doubting it's the opposite of trusting it's the opposite of of confidence in god he says if you have faith and do not doubt verse 21 you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree but even if you say to this mountain 
Now here's why we know that the fig tree is is symbolic here. Because the mountain is too. By the way, do you know of any examples in the Bible where a follower of Christ says to a real mountain, okay mountain, you fall into the sea. It's not there. Because it's not necessary. There's there's no situation where that would be necessary to happen to give glory to God. Saying to a mountain, the mountain is is an allegorical idea for any problem that humans can't handle. Anything bigger than us, there's a lot of things bigger than us that we can't handle. And and he's probably right near the the Mount of Olives. He's not talking about that exact mountain. It's a figurative mountain just like it's a figurative tree he's talking about. They're not going to go around. Do you have any examples of the disciples going around and just killing all the fig trees in Israel? No. So he says, you, that what was done even to this mountain, you could do even to this mountain and say, be, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. The idea is that believing faith, believing prayer, which has Christ as its focus, is powerful and will be blessed by God. And he says in verse 22, whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. But you're not getting a Lamborghini today, so just get that off your list. Because, look, I don't need a Lamborghini to do evangelism because you can only put one person in there anyway. Pickup truck's better, right? See, is Jesus basically saying you can get anything you want? No. Case in point, Jesus wanted figs, could have said, hey, I'm going to just snap my fingers and there'll be figs on this tree. No, he used it as a teaching opportunity to teach his, 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 his followers about false advertising and pretending like you have fruit when you don't. He didn't eat right then. He didn't please himself right then. You lay hold of the power that is yours in Christ and things will happen. But we all doubt. What's with that? Well, the thing is, I I have some doubts right now. I have some doubts. I'm praying for things boldly. I am praying for certain people to repent of their sins and reconcile with their family and come back to the Lord and come back to their family. And I do not doubt God's power to act and, make the, and, and bring that about. Not one bit do I doubt God's power to bring that about. I do not doubt God's desire for that to happen. What I doubt is the people that I'm praying for, their desire for that to happen. Their cooperation with that happening see Jesus is saying basically believe God have real faith let's talk about real faith what's real faith like what does real faith do I think from this passage and even from the the little bit larger context in in chapter 21 we can see what real faith does I think Jesus is basically saying, look, don't let pride or greed or any sin cloud, cloud your sight here. You need to first and foremost admit your need for me. That's what real faith does. It admits its need for Jesus. It admits its need for Jesus. It admits its need for the Messiah, for the Savior. He's coming into Jerusalem. They're praising him. Hosanna to the son of David. What they were saying is, you are the promised Savior that would come and save his people from their sins they're they're admitting their need for the messiah how about you 
when, when troubles swarm in your life like a swarm of bees, that's not too hard to admit that you need Jesus, is it? But how about when you are, are successful and everything seems to be clicking and it's smooth sailing? It's a bit tough to admit your need for Jesus right then, isn't it? But in every situation, we've got to admit our, our need for Christ. How about when you keep committing that same sin over and over and over again and you feel like a loser and, and you, you, you just, you're just ashamed to even go to Christ? Even then, you've got to admit your need for Jesus. You've got to admit your need for a Savior. You've got to admit your need for the Messiah. See, we shouldn't wear the everything's fine facade. We shouldn't put on the I'm a good Christian mask and just come to church and then go home and have it just be completely the opposite. We should be honest about where we're at. We should admit our condition. I've had a knee problem now for about three months and I've been wearing a brace for that long and so if you see me limping, that's why. And people have said to me, well, just go under the knife and get it done. I'm afraid to admit my condition. I'm not willing yet to admit my condition. And so I keep wearing the brace. You gotta admit your, your need for Christ. You gotta admit your, your condition and whether you're failing or whether you're succeeding, you always need Jesus. There's a second thing I'll point out to you about real faith that we do see in the context here as well. Real faith not only admits its need for Christ and the Messiah and the Savior, it yields to his rule because he's the king. Remember, as he was coming into Jerusalem, they were literally having a coronation. This is the king. Jesus himself was declaring his kingship coming into the city. False advertising. There's fruit, but there's not. If we're yielding to his rule as the king, as the sovereign king, then we won't be false advertising. Do you realize that when you say, hey, I'm a Christian, I'm a, I'm a follower of Christ, there is like a big banner over your head that has a bunch of things that you're claiming. For example, our church has a sign out front and it says Grace Church. Well, people see that, they don't just think, oh, that church is all about grace. Uh, and when, they, when you say, I'm a follower of Christ, people don't just think, oh, so they're loving. No, uh, you're making a claim that you are a forgiving person, that you are an accepting person, that you are a, a merciful person, that you are a forgiving person, that you are a kind person. We're making that claim as believers and as a church. And the only way to back that claim up is by yielding to his rule, yielding to Christ's rule. Will we back up the advertisement or be convicted as false advertisers? Are we a person and a church of honesty and integrity and trust and faith and grace and mercy and forgiveness and acceptance? Sad to say, whether it's my life or yours or the church in general, many people coming towards those who say they believe and, and, and that Jesus is their Lord because they're yielding to his rule that's what that means they find bitterness they find bitter people they find greedy people they find judgmental people they find divisive people and it's not just our reputation that's at stake it's Christ's reputation is at stake we need to yield to his rule 
real faith admits its need for Christ and yields to his rule and then listens to his voice because he speaks his word. Think about the power of his word. He basically says, no fruit will grow on you anymore. And bam, immediately the tree dies. That's how powerful the word of God is. And by the way, we shouldn't just be sitting around in an empty room with no Bible and saying, just God speak to me in some way. When you've got a Bible that you probably don't have memorized yet all the way through, you probably want to read that because that's the word of God. Don't go look for some other word. Now, anything God says to you, any, any inclination you might have to go do something, better match up with what is in the word of God. Now, of course, it's not going to tell you to go buy a Lamborghini or not right it's not that kind of thing but you probably shouldn't be greedy you probably be a good steward you can buy a lamborghini if you want it that's going to help you glorify god listen to god's voice his word think of this passage think of this passage with jesus and the context jesus is coming into jerusalem and what does he say what i'm about to do is going to fulfill what the prophet zechariah said Zechariah 9 9. And then he comes into the temple. No, and then he's coming into the city, and people are singing Psalm 118 to him. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's all basically getting drenched in God's word. Then he comes into the temple, and he quotes to them Isaiah 56, verse 7 My house shall be called a house of prayer. And then he quotes to them uh, a reference to Ze- uh, Jeremiah seven eleven. You've made it a robber's den. He's bringing out the word of God that they should have been listening to. He even says, "Haven't you ever read out of uh, Psalm eight verse two? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you've prepared praise for yourself." God's word is authoritative. It is powerful. If He says it, it will happen. Look at what happened to the fig tree. It's interesting that Jesus, um, you can only find two places where there are like destroying miracles, reverse miracles, if you will. Miracles that didn't bring something back to life, but something died. Figs and pigs. Figs and pigs. Matthew chapter 8, verse 24. 2,000 swine. Uh, God had, Jesus had uh, cast the demons out and they went, he allowed them to go into the swine and they ran over the hit the cliff and died pigs and here the tree the fig tree interesting that the two destroying miracles that jesus performed didn't harm people that's how compassionate he is he taught those who came uh, to him he taught he taught those who he came to save about satan's uh, power he warned against the devil in with the with the pigs and then he showed his hatred of hypocrisy with the fig tree. But he didn't harm people in the process. You can, you can admit your need for him. You can yield to his rule. You can listen to his word because he is trustworthy and he is compassionate and he loves you. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, we read at the very beginning of the chapter that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. We read that 
Evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. That's when you have to trust the compass. That's when you have to trust what God says in his word when there are lies swirling like a tornado all around you. Real faith admits its need for Christ and yields to his rule and listens to his voice, his word, and then seeks his will in prayer. That's what you see in the last two verses here in Matthew 21, uh, uh, 21 and 22 in our passage. If you have faith and don't doubt, you will say this or say that and it will happen and whatever you ask in prayer, you'll receive if you have faith. See, power comes through confident, Christ-honoring prayer. Most of us, when we hear these words, have faith and do not doubt, we discount ourselves immediately because we say, yeah, right, well, I have doubts, so I must not have adequate faith. I must be less than than a normal Christian um, I, a lot of people are living defeated lives because they, they count themselves as lesser than because they have a few doubts. What did Jesus mean when he said what he said? Do we have a free ticket to get anything we want? And if you don't work yourself up into a faith frenzy, you somehow are deficient? Absolutely not. On both accounts. James 1 tells us that if you lack wisdom, you ask of God and he will give it to you. Do it in faith without any doubting. Don't doubt God's ability to act. Don't, act God's, don't doubt God's desire to bless you. But what about the thing we pray for and we don't get? What about the good thing we pray for and we don't get? God knows why he withholds and why he gives. Why he gives and why he takes away. God knows we don't. But don't take and twist this and say, well, I've got to somehow work myself up into a frenzy of faith and then it will happen. God makes things happen. We don't force God's hand. James 4 tells us, what's the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is it not your pleasures that wage war in your members? You ask and do not have because you ask with wrong motives so that you would spend it on your pleasures. Your motive's got to be right and you've got to be seeking his will. Whatever you want, Lord. All of us have prayed for people who then died. Prayed for healing. We prayed for reconciliation when, when the distance got bigger. There's plenty of things we prayed for and it didn't happen because, because in God's sovereign plan it was, was not meant to be. It's hard for us to figure out but we've got to seek his will in prayer. We've got to, to seek what he wants because he, he tells us to. Faith in what? Faith in God's power. No doubt about what? About his ability to act or his desire to bless. By the way, if you're a doubter today, let me say a word to you. You're not a loser. You're a person that needs to hear the gentle reminder, believe God. Believe God and don't believe the lies. Believe the truth. You're not a loser. Doubters aren't losers. Doubters are people who need to be pointed to trust God, believe Him. Let's go back into the context now as we close and, and I want you to see something here. Go back into the context of this passage. What time of year was it? It was Passover time. 
It was Passover where pilgrims would be coming to Jerusalem to offer sacrifices for their sins so that they would have assurance of forgiveness so that they would receive purification for their sins. They were coming, many of them, most of them honestly, sincerely. They wanted God's power and blessing. But to get into the temple, they had to pay the temple tax just to get in to offer sacrifice. They expected to be coming to a place of love and forgiveness and justice and grace and mercy. They, they were coming to the temple of God. But instead they found a den of robbers. Instead they found a place where people were scheming how to cheat them. A place where people were shunned and excluded instead of being accepted. The price of doves raised far higher than their worth. Merchants and money changers and religious leaders basically defrauding people in the name of God. People hungry for God then were being swindled. So we must guard our hearts against false advertising fruitlessness. You name the name of Jesus and you are saying that you are his ambassador and his representative. 2 Corinthians 5.20 tells us that we are ambassadors for Christ. But do not think for one moment that you are an independent contractor that is sent out to make it happen. What does that verse say? It says we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making his appeal through us. It's God who is at work in us both to will and do his good pleasure. He wants to use you as his tool to bring others to him. God is faithful. God is compassionate. He wants fruitfulness from his followers and he brings fruit forth through yielded followers. Picture the fig tree. God wants us to be fruitful, to genuinely trust Him and, and things happen. Zero it in even closer and you, you picture the fig leaves and the fruit. Well, fruitful faith is evidenced by fruitful living. There will be good fruit from God. It leads to power and blessing and joy. We've got figs on the table today. Jesus that day didn't have figs for breakfast. Jesus was unable to, to quench his hunger at the fig tree that day. But he was on his way to another tree. One day soon after, he, he came to Calvary's tree and he quenched the power of sin. He satisfied God's wrath against sin at the cross and at the cross, he took our place so that we could have our hunger satisfied in him. That we could honestly live before him in faith. That we could honestly live before him in repentance. Knowing that he can and do, can and will do whatever he wants for his glory and for our good. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that the best way to guard against false advertising is to come to you dependently, obedient, experiencing your blessing and power, wanting you to act, knowing that if you don't act, it won't happen. Not doubting your ability, not doubting your desire, knowing that we are weak, but you are strong. Lord, we come to you now by faith, asking for you to do what only you can do. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.